Welcome to the second series of the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. These podcasts are recordings from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice lecture series for the academic year 2021-2022. This series of guest lectures is coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, and the Professor of Development Studies, James Putzel. Each week in the Cutting Edge series, Renowned guest lecturers share their expertise and spark discussion on an exciting range of issues, from the battle over COVID vaccines with Jayati Ghosh, to what's wrong with aid with Claire Short, to the political economy of Parasite, the Oscar-winning movie with Harjun Chang. Since 2020, the series has taken place online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures via this podcast and on YouTube, opening them up to a global audience. I hope you enjoy the lecture. My name's uh, Duncan Green. I'm a professor in practice at uh, the London School of Economics. Um, And I'll be chairing today, um, partly because the normal chair, the person who's chaired the first three, um, James Putzel, has jumped the fence and will be the discussant tonight. Okay, let's get on with it. Today's topic is what's wrong with aid? I'm a little bit worried that um, two hours is not going to be enough, but let's see. and we have a fantastic and eminent speaker, Claire Short. Uh, Claire is, has been a towering figure, I think, in the aid business. I actually started working in the NGOs on the 2nd of May, 1997, the day after uh, the uh, first Blair government was elected. And Claire was made um, Secretary of State for International Development in a brand new uh, full department called uh, DFID. Department for International Development, which was recently scrapped by the current government. And I'm sure Claire will be talking about that. Claire came in as a new broom in a new department and her impact was quite extraordinary. I think um, DFID raised the aid business bar to to new heights in terms of professionalization, in terms of impact. Claire personally was responsible for driving a lot of the global conversation on aid, including things like the Uh, the creation of the Millennium Development Goals. And um, I think without the leadership of people like Claire, it's quite likely that aid would have gone down in the 90s uh, and the 2000s after the uh, the Cold War logic for aid had disappeared. And she and her colleagues created, I think, a new logic uh, for aid, which we still still have, I think, in many places and in many ways. She resigned from the uh, Labour government in 2003 over the Iraq war. She then wrote an award-winning book, An Honourable Deception, New Labour, Iraq, and the Misuse of Power. And the most surprising testament I think I've seen to her was from uh, a Conservative successor, Andrew Mitchell, who described her as a brilliant development secretary. Since she stood down as an MP, she's remained a significant figure on the global stage. She was chairwoman of the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative for, for a long time, and an influential member of the Cities Alliance on Urban Poverty and the Role of Cities. So welcome, Claire. Uh, we're really, really honoured and happy to have you here tonight. So discussant um, uh, is James Puttle, who is a Professor of Development Studies uh, and served as the Director of the Crisis States Research Centre um, and headed the Centre's research programme on crisis states. Uh, he's co-director of the MSc in Development Studies and teaches the course on theory, history and policy. So James was very keen to be discussing because he's been so involved with the UKA programme and the UK debates on aid over many years. So, um, Claire, over to you. Uh, I believe you want to speak for about half an hour and then James will come in. Thank you very much. Uh, Good to be here and good to meet up with everyone. What I want to argue today is that there are great swings in attitudes to aid and development that reflect the values of different political eras and we're going through a hostile swing at the moment, particularly in the UK, but not just in the UK, the failure to make vaccines for COVID available across the world, even though it's in our own self-interest to prevent the development of a variant, shows a mean-minded attitude um, that is also an intelligence. And of course, the promised 100 billion a year for climate action has still not been met. So this is the UK is particularly bad, but there's, there's a global move that's hostile to aid and less committed. Um, 
I strongly believe we need to learn from past experience and reposition the development discourse to meet the very serious challenges of the present era. That's the argument I want to try to make today, the repositioning of the discourse. As you all know, the UK, like all OECD governments, massively increased spending in order to counter the effects of the COVID pandemic. In the UK, the extra spending was 340 billion pounds, some say 400 billion, which is an enormous sum of money. And, the, and yet at a time when the pandemic effects were hitting the low income countries' economies hardest, as the IMF recent annual reports spelt out, the UK cut its annual development spending by four billion pounds, four billion versus 340 billion. Very small amount, very big effect. This was of course cruel and a breach of the government's election manifesto and UK law. And of course, since then, we've heard that Sunak has plans on fiddling the effect of special drawing rights and contributions to the cost of vaccines contributed to COVAX to possibly impose even further cuts. It's impossible, I believe, for any reasonable person not to conclude that this cut was driven ideologically by a pure hostility to aid and development which has been consistently reflected in the right-wing press in the UK for, for some years. And I think the current prime minister was won over to those arguments and the jealousy of the foreign office um, for the defeat's control of a big budget, which I talked about previously. And yet 10 years earlier, the conservative coalition government under David Cameron the Tories for the first time re-elected after New Labour's era, elected in 2010, had gone to great lengths, as described most recently in Andrew Mitchell's recently published autobiography, to match Labour's commitment to international development in order to improve its reputation and in Theresa May's words, no longer be seen as the nasty party. So the same party with a lot of the same personnel in operation, swinging in its attitude um, to international development and its desirability. If we look back briefly over the history of international development, and I won't do this in great detail and uh, with apologies to James, who I'm sure will correct me where I'm uh, not being entirely accurate, but if we look back briefly over the history, which only began, of course, at the end of the Second World War with the establishment of the United Nations, the end of European imperialism, with 60 countries winning their independence in those years, we see a surge of, of enthusiasm for development. And at that time, a sort of concept that, well, the UK, Western Europe, North America, they industrialized and developed very rapidly. Now the independent countries that had been colonized and misused would have their freedom, would be, would be able to take the same path and very rapidly industrialize and develop and uh, relieve poverty and making considerable progress. That was the mindset of the time. Uh, the declaration of the first UN development decade was launched in 1961 and it called, and I quote, for all member states to intensify their efforts to mobilize support for measures required to accelerate progress towards self-sustaining economic growth and social advancement in the developing countries. I think it's interesting, 61, talking about self-sustaining economic growth, sustainability was in the mindset back then. And then we get October 67, already by then, a growing mood of disillusionment about development. So the World Bank established the Pearson Commission to learn the lessons of the last 20 years. The, here's the report. I think it's worth a look, actually. A lot of what it says is still true to this day. Um, it was made up of the great and the good from, for many countries. Um, and it concluded that economic growth in many developing countries had outstripped that in industrialized countries at a comparable stage in their development. But of course, because population growth had been considerable, the benefit in GDP per head had been less than one may have expected. They recommended a commitment to guess what, 0.7% of GDP for ODA, but they said for a transitional period, 
and then development would take place and it wouldn't be needed anymore. They call for improvements in the quality of the aid relationship um, and indeed criticized a lot of the misuses of aid that we know still take place, called for action on trade and investment flows. All of that is very familiar and it's, as I say, I think a pretty good report, but it's worth reminding ourselves that at this point in history, developing countries numbered 100 with a total population of two thirds of humankind. Clearly, there's been a considerable success in development since those days. Um, since it's not two thirds of humankind that now um, are thought of as developing countries and least developed countries. So there was a bit of progress after that. And then the next, next swing in political attitudes came with the lost decade of development and the debt crisis of the 1980s. This was a period of global recession, fiscal restraint and the Washington consensus, markets, 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 get the state out of everything. This decade led to the ascent of neoliberalism and was a disaster for Africa and Latin America who experienced negative GDP growth that wiped out previous gains. And that's the 80s. But the next big shift came 10 years later with the end of the Cold War, which is when I have my little part to play. Big, big cuts in defense spending. And I think a general confusion amongst international leadership on what were the priorities now? I mean, we'd had all these spies and people who hadn't noticed that the Soviet Union was crumbling. I mean, I think that's wonderful. All those films, all those novels, all these people crawling about all over the world. And there was the Soviet Union starting to implode and Gorbachev doing his thing and they didn't know it was coming. Um, for example, when I fairly early on, when I went to the Department for International Development, C, the top guy in MI6 is known as C, I think M in the Bond films, but it's the same thing. He would come to see me to see if he could help. And I'd say, well, how could you possibly help? And he'd say, well, we have um, very good contacts with the presidents in developing countries. And I said, well, how can I have you spying on the countries that I'm trying to create a partnership with and so on? But I mean, that's just a little vignette of their desperation. I mean, the head of the um, Admiralty came to see me to say they'd like to rig up a ship that could go anywhere in the world in case there was a crisis. And they built so there was really a feeling of not knowing what they were all there for suddenly. Um, and so we got this, and it wasn't just magic and, and uh, inevitable, and there was a lot of work put into it, but we got world leaders agreeing to mark the birth of the new millennium with a joint commitment to systematically promote social and economic development encapsulated in the millennium development goals. And whatever their deficiencies, I think there were a significant framing of a big international joint effort and a real partnership for development. Commenting on the MDGs, Ban Ki-moon um, said, and I quote him, the MDGs were the most successful anti-poverty movement in history. They helped to lift more than a billion people out of extreme poverty and make inroads against hunger to enable more girls to attend school than ever before and to protect our planet. And he added, yet for all those remarkable gains, I'm keenly aware that inequalities persist and that progress has been uneven. My own conclusion is that there had been great progress and progress is possible and had been made, but more effort was required, but we knew ways in, all, in which to make progress. So let's be positive and go further. It's notable that in the period around the turn of the century with the ending of the Cold War, although we're busy trying to invent a new one because it gives everyone something to do. But in, in, but in that period, there was a spirit of internationalism, a commitment to social justice, which led to significant progress in development and it swept across the world. Since then, the mood has darkened considerably, I'm afraid, and the tide of division and nationalism is spreading across the world. This is a new era. The challenge of climate change is urgent and serious and the need to transform our economic model to a sustainable way of living is existential. Probably an overused words, but it's appropriate in, in this context. It's clearly impossible to deal with the crisis. Sorry. 
of climate change and environmental collapse without a commitment to internationalism, uniting the whole world behind the endeavor. And to achieve this, we need, I'm arguing today, urgently to reposition the discourse on aid and development. And I believe we have an important opportunity to do so just now. And I'd like to refer to just a couple of the things I've read in the last couple of weeks that they're an example of agencies, organizations and groups that have had very little interest in development in the past calling very strongly for international collaboration in order to deal with the crisis as they see it from their perspective, not just thinking about the developing world. You've got the Financial Times, which, yes, is the intelligent face of capitalism, but it follows the markets and reports on them and so on. But calling for a new agenda, um, expect the unexpected, protect the weak, cooperate globally, promote resilience, these are the four clear lessons of the global financial crisis and COVID-19 pandemic, the two big shocks of the 21st century. And it's saying we can't cope with these and the international system can't cope with these without being much more serious about those who are losing out in our economies and without looking at the needs of developing countries. And it's not just saying we should be kind to the poor, it's saying if we want to look after ourselves, we've got to take on this global agenda and be interested in um, poorer people in the OECD countries too, because without that you get populism and political instability and then you can't do what needs to be done. Um, there's a new report reported on today, probably came out yesterday, from the United States intelligence agencies, not a group that have been well known to be strong supporters of this agenda, the 18 US intelligence agencies have just issued a report on the security implications of climate change. They state that the effects will be felt most in developing countries, which are least able to adapt. The BBC report on, on this says, the report paints a picture of a world failing to cooperate, leading to dangerous competition and instability. Some ways, they say, this bleak future might be avoided are uh, because they see us on a bleak path and that we're not going to put things right. Um, a breakthrough in technologies, which I'm sure we'll get some of, but to hang our hats on only that would be very dangerous. Or, they say, a climate disaster that acts as a spur to greater cooperation. So you've got the 18 US intelligence agencies saying the world is heading for a lot of trouble unless we can cooperate much more globally. Strange bedfellows in these strange times. Um, Martin Wolf uh, in the Financial Times on the 20th of October, talking about the climate change conference that is about to arrive and summarizing the report of the International Energy Agency, its World Energy Outlook 2021, based in Paris, an expert on oil prices and all that, been there for a long time, not been a great advocate of development. Um, it takes a number of scenarios. Uh, one is if all the countries implement the policies they've committed to. One um, that looks at the UN Sustainable Development Goals and their effects and one looks at everyone aiming for net zero emissions by 2050. And it finds that technically we're capable of getting to net zero by 2050. Um, but they stress, crucially, the transformation has to be global. The battle will ultimately be won or lost in emerging and developing countries, which have the fastest growth in population and in demand for energy. Today, for example, almost 770 million people live without electricity. All this will require huge investment by both public and private sectors, with the latter guided by the right incentives and reg regulations. The pattern of investment in energy will be transformed from fossil, fossil fuels towards batteries. And then again, it says, Will it happen in the developing world? There's a lot of commitment to coal in those countries. If they don't get the chance for something else, they'll see mighty crises 
displaced population and won't achieve what needs to be achieved for the whole world in order to stabilize the climate. So this is no organization saying we must look after the poor of the world. This is saying if we're going to do something about ourselves and about the threats of climate change, we've got to include the developing countries in the progress that is to be made. In fact, they say that 70% of the investment needed to cope with climate change needs to take place in developing countries. And then just one more, again, it's reported in the FT, but Mohammed El Aryan talking about markets. Um, and he says, yes, how are the markets doing? You know, what's happening about inflation? Will they go up or down? Who's making the money? You know, all those kind of speculative articles that papers like the FT carry all the time. And he says, everyone's worrying about inflation, but no one's looking at what's happening in the developing world and the dangers of debt and um, a complete deceleration and loss of development achievement. And just a bit, a quite little quote from his advanced economy should note that troubles in the developing world will also affect them. The more that developing countries risk being knocked off the convergence process, that's the constant growth to get to the same sharing of technologies and economic well-being as the rest of the world. Um, the more that developing countries risk being knocked off the convergence process, the greater the likelihood of surges in migration, global financial instability, and geopolitical threats. There are also implications for in investors, da-di-da-di-da. So don't you think this is interesting that suddenly there's a whole commentary app with no history or interest in development saying without global cooperation and including the interests of, of developing countries in the next phase as we have to transform both the energy systems of the world and indeed our economic systems in order to get to sustainability if we don't include the developing countries we won't make it and we'll all be in more and more trouble that's the arguments um, that they're making so I'm arguing that the focus of the development discourse should, need, should move to the need for international cooperation to prevent the potential damage of climate change and environmental collapse and all the rest. And then I want to quote Boris Johnson of all people. It's notable that Boris Johnson, the prime minister who crudely cut British aid and abolished the Department for International Development, with a ridiculous statement to Parliament about how intolerable it was that he couldn't spend money in Ukraine when he had to spend it in Zambia. If you remember all that, I quoted it in my last uh, remarks, but it's available, of course, online. Uh, he went to the UN very recently as the representative of the country chairing the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference and announced it was time for humanity to grow up. He said that we were doing such irreversible damage that we will make our planet uninhabitable for humans and other species. He said that we were doing such irreversible damage that we will make our planet uninhabitable for humans and other species. And I quote then, and if we keep on our present track, the temperature will go to 2.7 degrees or more by the end of the century. And we will see desertification, drought, crop failure, and mass movement of humanity on a scale not seen before. He also acknowledged that we, meaning the UK, started the Industrial Revolution and therefore we take our responsibility to the developing world seriously. Well, it's a funny way he has of showing how he takes the responsibility to the developing world seriously. But I think even he, with the, the position he's already taken on development with one side of his brain, suddenly comes out with this speech, partly because he's got to take this conference forward, but it just shows that I think that a space is open. If we can re reposition the development discourse, there's a lot that we can gain. So in my view, development must be seen as key to creating a safe and sustainable future for all people. It must cease to be out about charity for the poor. Now, the argument up to now has always been about both. Yes, it's in all our interests to create a safe and sustainable future for the whole world. Yes. But then the development discourse is be kind to the poor, be kind to the poor. And it's got that charitable kind of slightly patronizing tone in it. And I'm, that's what I think we ought to look at again.
and we might reach a bigger audience if not that we ever come into a kind of pure selfish discourse but that we just increase the sense of common humanity solidarity is a need for all of us of course lessons must be learned about the problems of aid it has been riven from the start with ulterior motives that's dealt with in this report even back then tied aid you know which people always say it reduces the value of the aid by 20 percent that is tied aid requiring that both the personnel and the equipment be purchased back in the donor country but it puts impossible burdens on the receiving country with lots of experts from different countries and lots of equipment from different countries making it more and more difficult to carry through any kind of reform tied aid utterly destructive utterly selfish we've had all sorts of efforts to get rid of it and it's still out there um, I did manage it for the UK uh, in my time. Is it still gone or have they brought it back? I'm afraid that's one of the things that will fall. Anyway, unsuitable projects, export credits often, promoting projects that are in the interests of the exporting country, but some of the value of that is put down to aid, but it's like massive, up-to-date, spanking hospitals when countries desperately need a basic working primary healthcare system, that sort of thing. And those distortions are going on all the time and out there. Spending for military and political influence. We saw that very strongly in the uh, period up to the end of the uh, Cold War. Mobutu might have been a autocratic kleptocrat, but he was a pro-Western autocratic kleptocrat, so the aid kept flowing to him and so on. Um, in addition, I mean, I'm not going to drum on about all these deficiencies but i think they should be admitted and addressed there are massively too many actors uh working in development using up the time and energy of officials in central and local government in low-income countries bilateral agencies and ngos must cease to see themselves as the providers of services to the poor and instead empower local people and institutions to provide for themselves in a sustainable way and we've said this before but i think we've been going backwards on that with um results-based development so then it's how many books did you give out how many arms did you inject not did you build a system that can uh, purchase its own books for its schools and repair its own schools and train its own teachers and work its own and and that we must get back to all of that i think it's remarkable that there has been so much progress in development when many of its instruments and actors take such a blemished blemished approach and have from the very beginning and yet there has been systematic progress. So I think it's time now in this period of disappointment and negativity and nationalism for a serious stock take and students and researchers have an important role to play. We need new analyses, research and thinking on ending conflict and supporting the building of capable institutions in fragile states because you know <laughs> It's easier for us to send out people to provide the services and in a fragile state with very weak institutions, it's even easier. But how does the fragile state ever cease to be a fragile state if there isn't a way of helping it build up its own institutions and have a sustainable capacity? And I don't think enough attention has been paid to that. And then we've got the lessons of Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Libya. They lie in front of us. Failure, failure, failure massive spending, development as an arm of what's of a military lead that failed. I mean, we have to think about, and I mean, there's a chance to think about, could some of that all have been done differently with less of a military footprint and more of a focus on creating sustainable institutions and empowering people to build their own future? It requires, of course, a long-term perspective, but I think we need to have that conversation. And then progress is not being made in the Sahel. And so mil more military forces are being uh, brought in, indeed, including, uh, I see, Russian um, mercenaries. And then we've got the situation in Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, where there's been long-term commitment with military and development um, engagement, but weak progress. There's lots that isn't working there's a need to recognize and and modify the, the the military first approach and also to learn more about how to work better in fragile states and the uk 
boasts that it changed to 50% work in fragile states. And I don't, I don't think, though I'm not close to all the writing, so that some of this may be unfair and you will, James, I'm sure challenge me and you should, and I want you to, but just not enough focus on the need for different approaches in order to be more successful against that challenge. We are, as we all know, at a crisis point in history, the future looks bleak with growing inequality, selfishness and nationalism at a time when we need greater international cooperation than we've ever seen before. But there's also a growing understanding that climate change and, and environmental degradation threaten us all, and that the transition to a sustainable way of living re requires a complete transformation. Development discourse, I believe, needs to grab hold of this opportunity and show how solutions can be found and progress made. I think too much of the discourse is, oh, whoa, crisis, tragedy. I mean, of course, there are crises and tragedies, but then the, the, the fact that there has been significant progress is somehow lost. And the general public thinks, well, they just keep calling for money and nothing happens. And that is not true. And that's part of the problem of the discourse. The old discourse was dominated by an image of charitable handouts for the poor, and that must end. It's not that there's anything wrong with charity in its right place, but as the dominant image of development assistance, it is patronizing and it's resented in the, in the developing world, especially young people in Africa, they really resent it. And it's invested in images of the poor as hopeless, needy people that need rescuing. I, I might be overstate, but it's in there in the picture and it won't do and it insults. I've worked in the last uh, 10 years or so with Cities Alliance on the urbanizing um, informal economy in Africa, South America, uh, Southeast Asia. And one has only to visit some of the shacks and slums of cities across Sub-Saharan Africa and the South Asia and South America to know how false that image is with entrepreneurial people providing their own shacks, finding water, paying for it because the state doesn't provide, getting solar panels to get some power for themselves, getting children to school and running enterprises in the informal economy with very little support from, from their state and their institutions. With a little support and investment, they could transform the economic prospects of their countries, the energy and entrepreneurial ability they have. We must, I'm saying change the message to the need for international solidarity to rescue our planet and our international economy and peace and security from the terrible damage that will endanger the future for everybody. That's the challenge to development actors in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. You said you were going to speak for 30 minutes and you did. I'm stunned. James, over to you. Thanks very much, Duncan. And Claire, I always find it difficult to come after you. I, I'm a great fan of yours and what you did also as Secretary, Secretary of State uh, for, for um, development. I think unmatched really uh, in terms of people who have held that position. Um, and I saw you build a department, Department for International Development that had real credibility. We were, we were doing research all over the developing world and it was, uh, it, it was wonderful to see a good reputation from a development agency um, reflected in most countries where we went. So this was, a, this was a big change from the past, but it was also an historical moment which I'm not sure um, has not already been dissipated by the changes over the last 10 years uh, wrought by the conservative-led governments. I do, because you talked about history, I, I do want to say one or two things related to the, that historical Please setting. do. I, I really shouldn't have said that in front of no, you. No, 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 you should. You should. And I think, you know, it's largely right. But I, I want to put a couple of things into context including about your own history in, in, in DFID. So, um, I mean, the, the first is that you were quite right, and I, and I was really happy to see you holding up the Pearson report from the late 1960s. That was an extremely important moment. But what was so important about that? The, 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 that Pearson Commission was set up um, 
um, to investigate how aid had been instrumentalized by big Western corporations and corporate interests and the extent to which aid was serving as a tool for military intervention. So under the leadership of the United States, the United States Development Aid Act of 1961, you know, said very clearly aid is a matter of US national security. And what we saw during the Vietnam War, which were my formative, my formative years, was uh, not only CIA involvement, but counterinsurgency programs being pursued through aid organizations, et cetera. So there was that, and there was also that, that big question of tide aid and using aid to promote Western commercial interests. And the thing that was started by the Pearson Commission and then taken up within the OECD and the, with the formation of the Development Assistance Committee was to define what really could be aid. And aid had to have um, uh, its composition, its funds, et cetera, were devoted to actually improving development outcomes. Yes, so I think it's a heroic organization. It doesn't sound yeah. like it, but yeah. the way it's pursued, trying to get rid of the nasties and keep the thing honest, has been yeah. very consistently over years, has been really important. Yeah, and so they, were, they, they laid out a kind of definition and while it was not always followed by member states, it, like anything else of this sort, there was an, an accountability. So, so donors had to, had to show how their, the purposes of their spending called aid were for, for development purposes, not commercial purposes, and not military purposes. Of course, OECD countries have military spending, um, you know, of course, they have commercial projection of their companies, et cetera, in, in all around the world, but not in the name of aid. So, so, so that was a big progressive step. And um, it didn't untie aid immediately. That came incrementally. And I think there was a big step during your tenure and uh, in, in, in DFID together with other partners to to bring that more to fruition. But at the same time, I would say that um, the, the, the big step was to focus aid on poverty reduction, but that was within a neoliberal world and a neoliberal world led by Tony Blair in part. Um, and I know that you know, you're a big critic of a lot of the neoliberal dimensions uh, of the Blair government. And certainly I'm not blaming you for that. But there is in this sense um, an important issue related to what was the original conceptualization of aid historically. And that was that, and I think it's the most important justification for aid. The most important justification for aid is historical, and it's about the way large parts of the globe were adversely incorporated into the global economic system, most blatantly through colonialism, but it wasn't only colonialism. So the rich countries got rich and stayed there. And we can see this also with the slow graduation of countries from into middle income status, and then the real barriers to middle-income countries you know, throughout Latin America and other parts of Asia, stepping up to be part of the richest club. So there are still, it's a structurally um, uh, unequal world with big barriers to, to move up in the world um, for large parts of the globe that were excluded from the beginning. And so I think redressing those structural barriers is a big argument. And of course, part of that was that the wealth of our societies in Europe and in North America and whatnot is in no small part due to the ways in which large parts of the world were incorporated into that global system. And we see that in environment issues in spades, because in terms of the uh, historical contribution to warming this planet, it's our industrial countries of the North um, that have the hugest 
responsibility historically in doing that. And even when we look at China today, which has, of course, become the biggest greenhouse gas emitter on a per capita basis, it's far behind Western Europe and North America. And in an historical sense, it's nowhere near. Uh, so, so in other words, I think these historical justifications for a need to restructure the globe and to see concerted efforts to change the position of uh, the least developed countries and the middle income countries, this is, this is, you know, still really central and hooks up right to the present with our yeah, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with that, but yeah. we're living at a time when uh, we've got governments saying imperialism was great, it was kind, it did great yes. for <laughs> yes. curriculum. So I'm not, I'm, I don't want to rewrite history. I just want to say, where can we position ourselves now? Yeah, and I think progress rather than yeah. get blocked. Yeah. But, I, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, I, I bring this up mainly for the philosoph philosophical and even justice uh, terms uh, uh, of continuing an, an aid commitment. And I, I think there does, we're, well, that's what we're about in part, teaching about development. Uh, there used to be something called development education in our schools, et cetera, that's you know, all disappeared. Um, but I do think that that's important and people can relate to it. You know, we have the Black Lives Matter movement has brought back to the fore some of those long legacies of racism that emerge out of, you know, that, that stem from colonialism and percolate into the present. So we have these big justifications, but nothing bigger than the real existential crises you talk about. And with that, I'm 100 percent in agreement with you. I mean, I did want to say one other thing about the progress, and I do think there has been enormous progress in development. Uh, progress in development is probably not mainly because of aid, but there certainly has been a transformation in the globe. And when we talked about those 9 billion people out of poverty, the biggest contributor to that was China's progress in lifting people out of, out, out of poverty. Um, what I do want to raise, though, because I, you know, I can't really disagree with the things you said, but to be useful as a discussant, I, I, I want to raise a couple of things. So, you know, in the neoliberal world in which you, you very positively advanced a, an aid agenda that was focused on poverty reduction, which is a, an important thing to do, uh, at the same time, that neoliberal world and, and worldview allocates the, the, the central role for the future to markets and to business actors. And in the successor to the Millennium Development Goals, we have the much more elaborate Sustainable Development Goals. And there's a number of important advances in the elaboration of those, I think, in terms of the, the way they look at um, what's involved, what are the challenges in development. But the, there's an overwhelming leadership role accorded to private business and the private sector. And we know that the private sector must be involved in these existential challenges, the resources, the wealth that's, that, that is controlled in private sector has to be invested, but it can only be done with strong public sector leadership. Um, the incentive structure for private businesses is pragmatically and correctly to make profits for their shareholders, et cetera. They are doing really interesting things on the environment, but the public authority is really central to guide that, to regulate it, to create the incentives for it to go on. And you see, I think there has been some really big setbacks in this regard, and not least led by the UK uh, over the past 10 years under Boris Johnson's uh, and, and, and his predecessors. But, but I don't leadership. Either, yeah. But let me say, I mean, even the right wing now is saying you have to have education yeah. in order to have a modern, successful economy. Um, of course, my dearest to my heart is reduction of poverty. And of course, that's like a welfare state, if you like. Yeah. So 
functioning market, you need a welfare state, and that's and that's part of it. Mm. But I am challenging mm. us to win the argument in these times. Yeah, and I agree. I agree with. I agree. And and we're losing at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I I think you're right, and we have to we have to address our arguments to the moment. But in 2015. UK government kind of led the way in the OECD undoing those definitions of aid. Precisely, you just asked, uh, well, are we again tying aid? Well, absolutely yes, because from the changes in the definition of aid signed on by all the OECD countries from 2015, money being spent previously by the Ministry of Trade and Industry and whatnot to kind of provide incentives for our businesses to go into to, to, to developing countries, to some of the fragile states you talk about, et cetera, uh, could be sourced in aid budgets. Before that was, you know, was happening by stealth, but it, it was legitimized. So too the military expenditure of our, that, that, that used to be covered by the MOD, et cetera, slowly also by stealth, more of the DFID budget was spent by military actors, we saw that from Afghanistan, then Iraq, um, how much aid also went into those military efforts, which, which we know have not been very successful in terms of con consolidating anything. Um, but in 2015, that was the other change. So the money that we spend on military activities in fragile states, et cetera, to maintain peace or whatever, can now be sourced legitimately from the aid budgets. And this is not just for UK, this is... So to some extent, we've backtracked on that. At a time, like you say, uh, where it's more important than ever that a certain amount of our resources are going to the places that have been historically, structurally disadvantaged in the global economy, where, you know, when we the also ever have have suffered in this pandemic. Being yes. right exactly. As my last sentence was just going to be, in fact, that, you know, especially in the case of the pandemic, they don't have the resources for furlough. They have been denied access to vaccines. There, there needs to be a much bigger effort there uh, transferring re resources to confront issues like the pandemic and the climate crisis issues where they're really hitting hard production systems all over the poorest countries of the world. So at this point in time, um, a reinforcement of, uh, of aid for these purposes, for sure, it's self-interested in a way because we recognize that the global environment, we can't address the climate crisis without addressing it in a major way in the developing world. We can't address public health and ending pandemics without seeing a major effort in the developing world. So, you know, we agree with each other, but I would become even more forceful, I think, in, in suggesting that the reversals need to be addressed in order to, to, to recenter this agenda. And um, the the hopes that private sector who must be involved are going to lead need to really be put into question because I think those are some of the big issues that have confronted um, uh, or, or that have been um, affirmed today in the latest sort of development of the evolution of aid. Thanks, James. Thank um, you. And But first, let's go to Claire. Claire, would you like to pick up any of the things James said and come back? I agree with everything he said, and oh, I'm being so good. I'm being deliberately provocative, but I am also saying we're in a new era. We're in an existential crisis, and there's a contradiction. I mean, it, there's this nationalism and selfishness and markets and inequality, but the growth of the worry about climate change and environmental degradation is really moving through societies and moving through the right and moving through the financial sector and so on. And I'm just saying we should grab this opportunity to get ourselves right back in there. Then the, all the arguments that come from past experience, because of course, spending aid money badly is just inefficient. So one gets back into 
what is the right spending and what it can do and what it can't do. But I'm, I'm being provocative and I'm saying we're losing the argument and there's a way of repositioning ourselves as leading players in knowing where the solutions are. And then we, it's the same values that, that underpin that and the work that needs to be done, but we might be able to go forward in this, in this era because otherwise we're all in dead trouble anyway. But I'm arguing partly because we're losing the argument. And I think that's serious and dangerous. Yeah, I particularly like what you said about winning the argument now rather than trying to win the argument of 20 years ago. I think that's, that's the real challenge we've got. Thanks to James for expert discussant and contribution. But above all, thanks to Claire. I've had this overwhelming sense of nostalgia for a different time, a time when people had ethics and passion and intelligence and they were in government. Um, this, was, this is something I've forgotten and I just feel, um, I just feel, I wish you were still in power, Claire, to be honest. I know I shouldn't say things like that, but um, although we often disagreed violently with you from the NGO sector, it was always a much better conversation than, uh, than we have now. Um, she's brought, I think, an extraordinary energy and dogged optimism at a time when, boy, do we need it. And I think we've all got huge reason to be very, very grateful to her for what she's contributed and what she continues to contribute. So thanks very much, Claire. Just to say next week, we continue with the dogged optimism where we have Mushtaq Khan uh, fighting uh, corruption around the world. He's gonna be talking about making anti-corruption effective. And the, uh, the discussion will be Uche Igwe from the, uh, the new LSE Institute for Africa. So I hope you can, I hope you can come along to that, but huge thanks. Um, we can't clap sadly, but we, we all feel like we're clapping and thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into this lecture recording from the Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice series for 2021-2022. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for International Development LSE. Stay informed about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website, or just follow us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.